Coming up on What Women Want to Know. I've sat in a, you know, a support group for women who were struggling with infertility and suffering from infertility when I was a trainee. And I heard women say things like, I feel like a horse that needs to be shot out at pasture. I heard women say, I hate going to family events. I think a lot of people think, oh, if you can't have kids, no big deal. No, but infertility is a disease and it actually is indicative of your overall health. I'm your host, Dr. Adana, and this is What Women Want to Know. The show where we navigate the complex, fascinating, and sometimes intimidating world of women's health and well-being. Here, we create a safe, judgment-free space where no topics are off-limits. We confront our fears, we embrace our vulnerabilities, and we find humour in the unexpected. Welcome to What Women Want to Know. On the show today, we are stepping into the intricate world of fertility treatments, specifically focusing on the IVF community and the extraordinary journeys couples embark on to expand their families. We'll delve into the heartbreaking reality of unequal access to fertility treatments and the innovative, sometimes jaw-dropping solutions people are finding to overcome these hurdles. Have you ever heard of using an app to find a sperm donor, meeting that donor in a car park, collecting your sperm, going back home and using a turkey baster for insemination at home? If not, buckle up. This episode is going to be a roller coaster ride. I'm thrilled to announce our special guest today, Dr. Lene Brayboy. She's a medical doctor, a reproductive scientist, and the chief medical officer at Ovum Care, a cutting edge platform where technology and reproductive care unite. Dr. Brayboy's extensive knowledge and first hand experience with the complexities of fertility treatments will provide us with an insider's look into this challenging yet fascinating realm. Good to have you on the show today, Dr. Linne. Hi, Dr. Donna. So nice to see you again. It's okay if I call you Adana because, I mean, we're friends in real life, so. Yeah, call me Adana. Leave all the formality. Oh, good. Call me Adana. Thanks for having me. Perfect. I've introduced you to the audience. They know who you are. They know what you do. So can you share a personal story or maybe a patient story without giving away too much that really inspired you and impacted your journey in the world of fertility treatments? Oh, absolutely. I mean, so of course, respecting patient privacy, I'll just give a very general uh, overview. Someone asked me point blank when I was counseling them about their fertility, they were undergoing uh, chemotherapy for cancer. And they asked me what happens if I get pregnant naturally after I've had the chemo. And I thought, hmm, do we really know? And I sat back and I was really frustrated. And I said, we need more research. We need more data. We don't know what happens if your ovary is exposed, then you conceive a child. What happens to that child's reproductive health, the grandchild's reproductive health? So that really started my research career. And I instantly was interested in looking at reproductive toxicants, such as chemotherapy, uh, to look at what are the long-term effects. And so we did have some data that we collected from mice that showed that if you have any changes in a particular protein called multi-drug resistance transporter 1, then potentially your grand maternal exposure, so your grandmother's exposure, could impact you two generations later. That's really what started off my physician scientist career. So just having a patient rather ask me a question, not having an answer. 
that's mind blowing though that two generations later you're still impacted by that mm -hmm. and it's questions like these that lead to the world's greatest researchers right at the end <laughs> of the day we're trying to answer yeah. questions that we don't know rather than pretending that we know and that's true right I think in medicine we forget that medicine's twin is research science and medicine need to always be neck and neck they need to have the equal love and equal treatment and unfortunately that's not the case we train a generation of doctors to become doctors who recognize patterns and that's great that's a noble field of course we need doctors but we also need physician scientists who can cross over between two worlds and that has been my life and really trying to be more innovative in uh, women's health or in reproductive biology because it's underfunded it's under-researched and also, frankly, understaffed because it's hard to be a physician scientist. You don't get the support usually of your institution. You have to constantly get grants and the collaborations are hard. Being a physician scientist is my life's work. I love it. And we need to know so much more about women's health, but especially the egg and egg biology. because We all come from a high quality egg. We are our mother's best high quality egg. <laughs> of course, you are. I love that. Of course, of course. Wow. Just listening to you describe this as your life's work yeah. is so inspiring and I remember that when a mutual friend put us in touch yes um, a couple months ago yeah and we went out for lunch right I was intrigued I really wanted to know more about the work that you're doing because obviously I'd stalked you on LinkedIn. <laughs> in a good way <laughs> in a good way I mean not everyone listening here is a scientist not everyone would go into the research or the data but I think everyone is very interested in how a condition or a disease or a particular health topic affects them from a yes. lifestyle perspective mm -hmm. and I remember that one of the things that really intrigued me about our conversation on that day was when you talked about fertility and the lengths that couples are yes. going to get yes. pregnant what are you seeing in the space that you're working and what are the lengths that people are going to to start a family yeah well I think I first came across infertility as a disease right because I think a lot of people think oh if you can't have kids no big deal no but infertility is a disease and it actually is indicative of your overall health so if you have trouble with making high quality eggs or high quality sperm that could indicate you have some other underlying issue. But when I first came across infertility, it was when I was a Fulbright fellow in the Republic of Mali. So I lived in Mali and I did a research project about placental malaria. And so my job in the team was to pick up the placenta or the placentae as they were delivered and take a biopsy of them. And so I saw firsthand women coming in, having children, women coming into the midwives, or as they say in French, the sage femme, to talk about why they couldn't get pregnant. And I saw with my own eyes how devastating infertility could be. And now this is in Mali. You could say, though, that's particular to West Africa or that's cultural or maybe that was because of the religion of Islam. But when you look in the West, we also see that devastation. I've sat in a you know, support group for women who were struggling with infertility and suffering from infertility when I was a trainee. And I heard women say things like, I feel like a horse that needs to be shot out at pasture. I heard women say, I hate going to family events because everybody else there will have kids. Now, these are women who are educated, who grown up in the West because infertility robs you of your control. It robs you of your choices. So it plays out the same way, but maybe differently depending on where you're growing up 
where you uh, have been raised, your culture, your education, but that pain is still there. And when we think about the first person who had a successful IVF cycle, Ms. Brown, so Louise Brown's mother, Leslie Brown, she suffered for, I believe, nine years with depression before finally her GP asked her what it was. And it was because she had involuntary childlessness that she suffered from that depression. So, you know, people think, ah, just adopt, oh, just get over it. But until it happens to you, you understand the pain that comes with that. And so part of it is people not realizing that fertility in humans is actually not very good. We're not very fertile, okay? We spend a lot of our lives trying not to get pregnant. But when we want to get pregnant, sometimes our options and our choices are limited because of the way people with ovaries age. And so we have a finite reproductive lifespan that starts with puberty and ends with menopause. But there's no given as to if your reproductive lifespan might be shortened or if you will be successful or if the diseases or conditions that you might be diagnosed with can impact your ability to have children when you want to. And so that's really why science and medicine need to work together so that we can give people more options and more information about their own particular conditions. It is interesting. I mean, when you talk about the finite nature of reproduction, right? Yeah. And also the fact that we spend a lot of time trying not to get pregnant. Yeah. Then when we do want to get pregnant, that's a whole different ball game altogether. That's right. The things that women have to deal with, right? Well, you know, I feel like the burden is always on women, but, you know, it yes. takes two gametes to make an embryo. And actually, even people with testes will have challenges with pregnancy, not necessarily in the same way, but as men and, and people with testes approach their midlife, their sperm quality can decrease. They have increased increased chances of having children with autism, increased chances of having children with schizophrenia. So we all need to be thinking about our reproductive lives. How many children do we want? Do we want to have children? Do we have to carry those children? Do we need to actually bear those children? Or is it okay if you adopt? And really having those frank conversations early in one's life is not happening. It's not happening at your GP. It's not happening at your OBGYN. And that's what we at Ovum, my company, we're on a mission to really let people have those conversations early and plan. Do you want to freeze eggs so that later on you have the option? And I think that just is not happening globally as it should. But I think what's more heartbreaking is that the burden of reproduction, especially when it doesn't go Mm -hmm. as planned, is usually on the woman. The burden always is on us. (laughs) It doesn't matter. Reproduction or not, it's always on us. Yes. You have a lot of cultures where, you know, the moment you can't get pregnant, it's automatically the woman is barren, infertile. Like all of the negative stigma is on the woman. No one talks about low sperm count. No one talks about, you know, age. The overall health of the man is usually on the woman. What women want to know. good bridge to talk about especially in the west where you're experienced and where you work yes you know what are the options for fertility treatment that you have especially would you like to expand more on what ovum care your company is doing sure so ovum care is a hybrid ivf clinic so we leverage ai tools so artificial intelligence tools to help improve one the patient experience success rates and also accessibility meaning that a lot of fertility treatments are expensive even as a fertility doctor in the u.s where i trained i couldn't afford most of the fertility treatments and a lot of states 
don't cover the fertility treatments because, because they don't think of it as a disease. And so uh, many people, most of the population, 95% of people who need infertility treatment can afford it. So that means only elite, well-heeled, moneyed people can afford to have the treatment they need. And of course, that creates disparities. And we already have so many disparities, health disparities yeah. in people of color. This is just another one, okay? Mm. And it's a big disparity. Because people are not having that conversation, they're not aware aware of their reproductive lifespan and they're not aware of their reproductive planning and choices. And at Ovum, we're trying to make it so accessible because you can book a free consultation for us to go over what is a reproductive lifespan. It's basically, it's a very high tech, souped up sexual education that we all should have had in high school, but really understanding <laughs> what's your ovarian reserve. What happens as we age? What's egg quality? Why is egg freezing something that's a viable option? It really helps people to pause and think about what they want to do. And so you don't need to pay any money. You don't, you don't even need to enter a credit card. You can come right into my schedule and book an appointment and I will give you a personalized 30-minute sexual health education course that you didn't get before. Well, and you've then, had the woman book your session now. <laughs> And I also see people on Saturdays. <laughs> so, you know, then you can really decide. And if you want to go forward, we then offer you financing options and transparent pricing, which is not common in my field. So you get to know right away how much is the consultation going to cost? How much is the antral follicle count going to cost? How much is the AMH? So there's no hidden costs that you get hit with and you're like, oh my God, I can't pay for this. And then if you need financing, we offer financing through Klarna, through PayPal, so that it's accessible so that you can yeah. spread the payments out over time so that you can meet the reproductive goals that you want to. Mm -hmm. And then because it's so accessible, people come in earlier because one of the biggest issues we have in, in infertility is that people wait. They wait because they're thinking, well, I'll meet somebody or you know, maybe it'll happen next year. And the waiting is actually the worst thing you can do. It's much more to be proactive about your fertility because then you are able to have time on your side. I can't tell you how many people come to me in their 40s and then they're like, oh, I want to freeze my eggs. And I go, okay, but you might want to consider freezing embryos because now the egg quality and quantity is lower than it would have been if you were 30 or even if you were 35. And also the risks could be higher to you at the age of 40 as opposed to 30 and 35. So really have Having accessibility is like the first goal at Ovum Care. And then once people are in cycle and they want to freeze their eggs, we can really show them not just how many eggs they got at a retrieval, which is standard for most IVF clinics, but we can actually show them quality assessment. So we look at morphology and we use an AI tool that shows, is this a high quality egg? And there are very minute differences and changes that the human eye cannot see, that computer vision can see, that can say that this seems to be a high quality egg, this seems to be a middle quality egg, this seems to be a low quality egg. And this is exciting because most patients never see their eggs. Most physicians never see the eggs they mm. retrieve. And we can actually show you. And then when you come back, we can show you your partner or your sperm donors, uh, semen quality. So people are, are really a part of their care. They're not just being dictated their care. And they know what's happened to them because they can look at any point in our patient support app. And it's really this accessibility without having to call, talk to a secretary that may not be so friendly, and then try to get an appointment and then show up, take off from work. 
really this allows people not to have that life disruption that a lot of people complain of when they go through fertility care. Okay, so let's talk about inaccessibility as a, a bridge to the next topic, which is the lens people are going now to start their family because you know you and I talked about it you mentioned people using apps meeting up in car parks using turkey basters I mean it's crazy because it's not regulated right so there are many countries who have many regulations about fertility care it just so happens in the U.S. we have regulated women's bodies when it comes to terminating a pregnancy right now uh, reproductive medicine is still largely unregulated. But in other countries like in the UK, uh, it's very permissive. You cannot do sex selection. Uh, But in other countries, you know, things like egg donation are like in Germany, you cannot do egg donation, you cannot have a surrogate. You know, you can get donor sperm, but not donor eggs. And, And so why do we have this inequity? Why is one gamete regulated and the other gamete is forbidden? doesn't make sense. So because of these restrictions, people who are, let's say, same-sex couples are excluded, right? I mean, a male-male couple will need both an egg donor and a surrogate. So what must they do? They have to go elsewhere. They have to perhaps work with maybe someone, you know, off the record, under the table. That's a playground, basically, a breeding ground for something not good to happen, right? Because then you don't know, has the donor been screened? Has the gestational carrier been screened? Are they going to try to, you know, extort someone for more money? And so this is what's happening. I mean, and there are apps where people are hooking up for sperm because same-sex female female couples, you know, it's expensive to buy donor sperm. And in fact, in Germany, you cannot have it shipped to your house and do the insemination at your home like you can in the U.S. So people have to work with a clinic and that costs money. And so to avoid pain, they hook up with these sperm donors on an app. And again, he could have donated 20 times that day to 10 women in your neighborhood and your children might go to school together and not know that they're their siblings. That's problematic. Whoa, that is wild. Yeah. That is wild. That's wild. Or he could be carrying a mutation for something that you have no idea. And so that's really the point of having safety measures in place and regulation that protects the population, but not limits the population. And a lot of the laws that are on the books here in Germany really are because of Germany history and not Germany's future. So we know that the population growth here uh, is not what it should be. And, and around the world, I mean, this is the same in Japan and Singapore, where we have a large aging population, but many people are not having children. Why? Because it's expensive. Or by the time they're ready to have children, they can't. And then they have issues. And again, the regulations might only support a certain type of person having a child. So in Germany, you have to be less than 40. You have to be married. You have to be male, female. That excludes a lot of people. And so tell me, they meet through an app. Let's explore that till the end. How does that then result in the baby? So the what happens is that you, you have these individuals, I, I think they're, they're called zaddies, who sign up to be donors. And then you have people looking through the profiles and then you meet them and in a little cup he produces a specimen and then they use that specimen to become pregnant. There's a couple things, okay? There's no one looking, first of all, you have no idea if the sperm quality is good or not. You have no idea if it's contaminated, right? So do you know the HIV status of this person? Do you know if they're hepatitis positive? You don't. Do they have syphilis? You don't. 
You don't know if they have any psychological issues. You don't know if they're going to come back and try to claim paternity over this child and then try to, you know, have shared custody. There's nothing protecting the person who is at the receiving end of this transaction. Yeah. And now friends have done this for, for years. And it's different when it's someone that you know, but when you're inviting someone off a platform that you don't know, you are inviting also the craziness that could come with that. And also the pain because, you know, we tell people when we do insemination, let's say a donor insemination from a, a reputable sperm bank, this sperm bank has to screen the donors. They are liable and responsible for making sure that the donors are screened. So say, for instance, I wanted to use a, a sperm donor who is African-American. Well, they are responsible for making sure that he has been screened for sickle cell. So that if I am also a sickle cell carrier, that I now know that I potentially could have a child with sickle cell. So this is why it's so, so important that you go through a healthcare provider to help you and guide you through these types of things. Because having a child that has a condition such as sickle cell is a big, big responsibility. And you don't want to yeah. be hit with that. You want to, again, have all of the information you possibly can so that you're empowered. So what happens yeah. after this is that the person may become pregnant and then they are, you know, the mother of record and then their partner would be the second person put on the birth certificate. But there are countries around the world, including Italy, that is trying to pass legislation that if you are born from a same-sex couple that you no longer have Italian citizenship. I mean, this is the type of world that, that we live in crazy. right now. That is crazy. Yeah. The child will be stateless. Essentially, and it, that's what they're trying to pass. I don't think they've passed it yet as a resolution, but you can see that people get caught in between all of these laws. And I've had people say, yeah, I, you know, I tried to do, you know, some treatment in the Czech Republic and they said I had to use Czech sperm. What? Oh, wow. And then, you know, in Spain, if you go there for treatment, the physician chooses your, your sperm donor. What? Based on your race and your skin color, potentially. What? Patriarchy is alive and well in reproductive medicine. Yeah. And this is why it's problematic. And this is why we have our clinical operations in London, which has, mm. again, the regulation to protect the population, but also it's permissive enough that people really have self-agency over their reproduction. What women want to know. We're taking a break to bring you what women want to share. Chloe, 31, from London said, I've been with my partner for seven years. We live together and have a great life. For the most part, we've been in agreement that we didn't want to have children. Since turning 30 and seeing my friends now start to build families, for the first time ever, I've started to feel maternal. My partner is absolutely not interested in having kids. I love him and we have a very healthy, loving relationship. I can't imagine my life with anyone else. However, I don't want to get old and regret not having children. Should I give my partner an ultimatum or should I give up the thought of having kids to be together? Ooh, that's a loaded question. I will weigh in on my opinion and then I will let the audience also weigh in on their opinion. So, Chloe, thank you so much for sending in what you want to share. Sounds like you were both in agreement that you didn't want to have children. And obviously things have changed. That's the beauty of life, right? The constant thing in life is change. Just to dive right into your question, should you give him an ultimatum? Should you give up on the 
idea of having children. I don't think giving anybody an ultimatum works. And I don't think that's even fair because once upon a time you were both on the same page. And I believe that you were both on the same page because a very open conversation led to you realizing that you both want the same thing. Fast forward, you're now in your early 30s, your friends are starting to have children and you're starting to feel broody and maternal. I think that's very normal. How about you go back to the drawing board? How about you bring up that conversation and you have a very honest, transparent conversation? Because I also don't think that giving up on the idea of having children is the answer either. Similar to what you said, you might go through life and much later regret the decision to not have the children. And I think that would also be unfair on your partner because you will forever blame him for being the reason why you don't have children. I don't think giving an ultimatum or giving up on the idea is the answer right now. I think that you should have a very deep, honest conversation. I know that the idea of having children or becoming parents is legitimate ground for breaking up a relationship. But then you also really have to honestly ask yourself, does he fulfill other aspects of this relationship that don't have to do with being a parent? Why is it that you think that you can't imagine your life with anyone else? And why is it that you think that you will be unhappy if you make the decision not to become a parent? Unfortunately, this is not an answer that anybody can give you. And I know that we go through life and we face these difficult challenges, hoping that there's a magic wand that comes up with the answer. But personally, I found that the answers really lie within ourselves. If we're able to sit in silence, to search our souls and to have honest, hard conversations. So my opinion and my suggestion will be to go back to the drawing board, sit your partner down and have this honest conversation. Why doesn't he want to be a parent? Is it the responsibility of looking after children? Could there be a compromise that maybe instead of having four children, you have two, or instead of having two, you have one? These are conversations that need to be had. But this is my personal opinion. I would love for the listeners to also weigh in. So depending on where you're watching or listening, head over to our YouTube channel and leave comments below. What are your thoughts about Chloe's situation? what women want to know. You're really at the forefront of changing the narrative here. And I really do commend you for that. Thank you. You know, there's a lot of barriers, whether it's access to information. Yes. Education early enough, you know, finances, autonomy. There's just so much. So what would be the top barriers to fertility treatment from your experience? Besides the education, also the bias of the healthcare system. So a lot of times we are not offering this care early enough. We offer people contraception almost at every visit, right? When you go into the OBGYN, mm. what are you using to prevent pregnancy? We're so used to that, but we should be really saying, are you trying to get pregnant in the next 12 months? What is your plan in the next 12 months? So then you're allowing the patient to say back to you, well, actually, I was thinking maybe, so then you can have a preconception consultation. 
right? And you can help prepare people for a healthy pregnancy because people may not be aware that some of their habits, their eating habits, their recreational habits may be adverse for a pregnancy. And then you can really have a conversation as opposed to assuming that everybody needs contraception. Not everybody does. Some people do. We need contraception in our lives. And I think this is really about shifting the healthcare narrative because we have biases in healthcare. And I think we're just now starting to recognize that that is the case, that we don't do enough training to go through and really have a non-judgmental, open-ended question conversation with a patient about what they want in their reproductive life. So I think it's it's also about changing healthcare and how we talk mm. to patients and also clients. A lot of midwives in the U.S. have started saying clients as opposed to patients because in reproductive medicine, okay. our patients are not sick. So they say clients instead. So it's education of the individual. It's not having bias about who you think needs contraception versus who you think needs mm. fertility care and, and asking the individual. Early referral. Mm. I can't tell you how many times I've heard a patient say, well, oh, well, my healthcare provider just said, oh, just wait a couple more years. Well, those years can be precious, especially if you have conditions that can make it harder for you to become pregnant. And then I think in terms of research, right? Because the treatments that we offer people right now are quite primitive, to be frank. And we are really at the forefront in Novum Care and using AI to help improve upon the treatments that we have right now. But IVF has actually been known about since the 30s. And so the birth control pill just took off earlier. Then IVF came about in the 1970s with the birth of Louise Brown. We have not really made any innovation and that's because the funding isn't there. The interest isn't there. So when you think about who funded the birth control pill, it was a private woman's donation that funded the birth control pill. Mm. Who funded IVF? Well, it was private people, okay? And people doing research at institutions, you know, kind of behind closed doors. And then it took off once there was a first birth. But there hasn't been any governmental or public funding put into innovation into IVF. And when you look at it compared to, let's say, neuroscience or rare diseases or men's health, women's health falls short. You know, I don't know in the UK, but definitely in the US, we have an institute that women share with children. So our, our health funding has to be shared with pediatrics always, which I always find interesting. So, you know, and, and women's health is way, way, way underfunded. You just mentioned earlier that in the US, you're changing the term patients to clients. It's happening. Yeah. And so whilst you're doing that, do you not think that there is still an existing barrier when you refer to infertility as a disease? Mm. Yeah. So that's the thing. So for me, I still say patient because I assume that these individuals have a condition and a disease that needs to be treated. A midwife who is delivering somebody who's pregnant might say client. And so I want people to feel that I'm a physician who is treating a condition. So I still say patient. I understand okay. the logic behind saying client when people are maybe going to someone for well woman or well care and they don't necessarily yeah. have an issue. But this is the point of well care right? This is the point of preventative care is to find out, is there an issue, right? Is to find out, go yeah. through your history and find out what are your goals and are your goals being met or is there some hindrance and then be referred early. That's the whole point of well yeah. woman care. Okay. So what is the biggest misconception mm -hmm. or myth about fertility treatments that you would like to debunk today? Huh? 
The biggest misconception is that fertility only happens to somebody else. Every single ethnic group suffers from infertility. And it's not a woman's problem. It's a couple's problem. It's a problem that the couple shares if it's a male-female couple. And one in six couples around the world suffer from infertility. And so when that is occurring as a couple, the couple needs to go through evaluation. The couple needs to go through diagnostics and not just the woman because it takes two. And I've seen on both sides, I've seen men very contrite saying, oh, well, it's just me. She doesn't want to come onto the call. No, I need to talk to both of you. Both of you are in this together. Or I see a woman say, oh, well, my husband won't ever come in. Well, then how are we going to treat you? So it doesn't mean you're less of a man or a woman because you can't have a Mm -hmm. child. And it could be something very straightforward that we can help you with. But if we wait five years, it no longer is simple and straightforward. Many couples describe the IVF journey as an emotional roller coaster. And I know this because I have friends that have gone through this process. What advice would you give to couples to help them stay resilient and hopeful throughout the process? Well, I would say take good care of yourselves. Get counseling, okay? Because Mm. sometimes people, I think, are surprised at how much you are impacted by this, you know, journey that you're on and how isolating Mm. it is and how unfeeling and unthinking people are. They'll say, oh, when are you having that baby? You know, your Christmas is coming up. And then your, you know, your cousin's kids are running around and they'll be like, oh, well, she's a rich auntie. She's never having babies. That's painful, especially when you're suffering in silence. And so I would say to couples, take care of yourselves, be kind to one another. And also know that when you get pregnant and when you have the baby, it's not going to solve all issues, okay, between Mm. each other. But it does allow you to at least say that you've had the ability to have a baby. And that is what we are trying to do at Ovum Care so that everyone who wants to be a parent can be. And they get the support they need. And I would really encourage people to seek help early. Don't let pride get in the way. And if you are a single individual and you're thinking about having children in the future, freeze your eggs, freeze your sperm, because it gives you options. And it's not an admission that, oh my God, I don't have anybody. Think of it more as empowerment that really now you do have someone, perhaps in the future, that you can have a child with because you've frozen your eggs. And actually, in practical terms, how soon after trying for a baby should you seek help? And to explain that further, right? So it depends on your culture, right? I'm Nigerian. If you get married, they expect that baby to drop a year after that union. Yeah, I didn't have kids until two years after getting married because I did not want to get pregnant or have a baby Mm -hmm. whilst I was still in medical school. So then when a couple starts actively trying for a baby, how soon should they then seek help if they don't get pregnant? So if you're over the age of 35, you need to be making an appointment right away because, I mean, if you've been trying for six months and you've not achieved pregnancy, then you need to be evaluated. Under the age of 35 should be 12 months. Okay, that's good practical advice. And we're going to conclude with one last question. So your role as Chief Medical Officer at Ovum Care, I can imagine comes with its fair share of challenges Mm -hmm. and rewards. Can you share a moment when you felt particularly proud or moved by the impact of your work? Ooh, there's so many moments, but I think, you know, we had a retrieval with a patient and just showing them everything and it was their first cycle. So they, they don't know that, you know, in most clinics that 
this would never be the case, that they would really have basically a front row seat in their care and also showing their eggs, showing their embryos is, is I think, the best part of my job and letting people know that there's future for them, that there is posterity for them and also showing them how they're cycling with us is really contributing to the future of IVF. That IVF with ovum care is committed to research and development that will give more options for more people in the future. And I think that's exciting. Perfect. Thank you so much, Linnea. Thank you for being on the show today. Of course. It was always good to see you, Adana. I hope we get together soon. Soon. We will, for sure. Take care. Bye. Bye. What women want to know. A big thank you to you for tuning into this episode. Whilst you're here, leave us a review and don't give us a secret. Share what we may want to know with your network of women, your mothers, your sisters, your daughters, but also the men in your lives as well. That's our show for today. Remember, your health matters and it's okay to talk about it. I'm your host, Dr. Odana, and this is What Women Want to Know.